Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, a game design enthusiast, role-playing game editor, indie hustler slash promoter and interview podcaster. You can find me on Twitter at IamFofos and on itch.io at blue-golem-games.itch.io. This week, a shout out to my Patreon backer, my wonderful friend Georgie. Thank you so much. Your support means the world to me. This week, I'm interviewing Austin Ramsey, the maker of Beam Saber, a Forged in the Dark game about mecha and other vehicles and their complicated, conflicted pilots. Beam Saber, spelled in the American way, is on Kickstarter until the end of March, and I implore you to check it out whilst you still can. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. Okay, so today we're interviewing Austin Ramsey. Hi there. Hello. Austin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games? Sure. I do a couple of different things. The thing I'm here to talk about today is that I'm the creator of Beam Saber, which is currently on Kickstarter right now. And you can find that at tinyurl.com slash beamsaberkickstarter. And that is a forged in the dark tabletop role-playing game about pilots and their powerful machines in a war that dominates every facet of life. Uh, Aside from that, I'm also the primary GM for You Don't Meet in an Inn, an actual play podcast about exploring obscure tabletop role-playing games with a rotating cast. I also do some audio editing for that some of the time, and I'm also the GM and editor for uh, the podcast Beam Saber the Cenotaph, uh, which obviously plays Beam Saber. It was um, my year-long campaign. I also uh, stream, not just occasionally, but the You Don't Meet in an Inn has a weekly Friday night stream, so I do the production side of that as well as GMing it. We're actually just wrapping up a campaign that's gone about a year, and we were supposed to, we're going to be doing an epilogue uh, playing uh, Takuma Okada's Stew Pot. Great! That's a lot of stuff. You must be very busy. Yeah, I'm also, um, even with the Kickstarter going on, there's other games that I'm working on. I've got uh, an itch page, which is at austin-ramsey.itch.io. Yeah, so you've got Beam Saber on Kickstarter right now. And so how much time will we have left to go out and get Beam Saber at that point? Well, it technically ends uh, April 1st at 7 a.m. Because that's the time that I had to launch it before heading off to work. Okay. Uh, But obviously that's going to be a bit early for uh, some people in different time zones um, or a reasonable time for others. So, you know, aim for aim for getting it in on uh, the Sunday beforehand, March 31st, to just to be safe. Got you. I will encourage everybody to do that. You've given us a fantastic elevator pitch for Beam Saber already. Do you want to take us a little bit more into the detail of where that came from, you know, the inspirations um, and the media touchstones, game inspirations, you know, where have you taken inspiration for that game from? Uh, From a number of places. Um, The three primary inspirations, though, are uh, the HBO show Generation Kill, which is a... I guess fictionalized, I'm sure it's fictionalized to some degree, of um, based on the book uh, by the same name, which was a nonfiction accounting f- from a uh, reporter who was embedded with a Marine unit 
uh, during the initial stages of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. So that's one of the inspirations. The second inspiration is the actual play podcast Friends at the Table, specifically their second season Counterweight. I am yet to hear Counterweight. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been very lucky because um, Beam Saber found its way to the hands of uh, Austin Walker, the the GM for the show. Yes, and, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, and actually, their their entire sixth season Partisan is using Beam Saber. That is that is quite something. Yeah, I, I'm very uh, excited for that. I've been enjoying the episodes that they've put out so far, and and Austin Walker's also been doing um, for uh, Patreon backers some like uh, insights into his GM work. Uh, sort of like yeah. a post-mortem stuff, and that's been really useful for me as the game's designer. I mean, th- this goes for all the feedback that I get from various actual plays that are using Beam Saber, is uh, seeing what people read into the rules, like what's actually there, what they infer from it, what I've implied, and what I've left out. That is, I mean, that's amazing. Congratulations on that, because there are... Um pretty big hitters you know in the in the actual play community they're uh, one of the biggest yeah i'm considering the uh height of the funding goal that was needed for beam saber to be what i want it to be and to pay people what i think is a reasonable rate i don't know whether or not i would have hit it without um their uh support so i'm really grateful for that the the third inspiration for beam saber in terms of uh, media is um of course uh gundam specifically the 08th ms team the ova uh from the the mid 90s early to mid 90s um i haven't watched a whole lot of gundam yeah for anyone who's listening and is uh, a fan of gundam or interested in getting more into it there's two really good podcasts that are uh watching through all of gundam in production order um the great gundam project and uh mobile suit breakdown and i i listen to both of those weekly and they're both really good i patronize both of them and i highly recommend that um if you're interested in getting into the the franchise that you give them a listen at the very least it sort of has like a a bit of a book clubby feel so keeps you thinking about the shows oh that's cool yeah, that sounds really good, actually. I like these um, sort of watch-along or listen-along um, <laughs> podcasts. And your game is a Forged in the Dark game. There's some bits which are a lot more hacked than um, I've seen in other hacks. So do you want to tell us about the bits that you've changed the most? Sure. Assuming some background knowledge in Forged in the Dark here. Yeah, obviously um, a game about Max is a long way from uh, industrial fantasy. So I have certainly made some changes. The obvious one is the addition of vehicles, and it's very pointedly vehicles and not mechs because I wanted to design the game such that people didn't have to be piloting uh, giant bipedal machines and instead could be piloting any variety of vehicle. Yeah, I think you were talking to Jeff Stormer about this and saying that somebody had been uh, designed an 18-wheeler, and I've got to say I am down with that kind of idea. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, there's been a lot of really uh, interesting suggestions, and when I've run Beam Saber at conventions, I've uh, gotten some very amusing interpretations of what people have wanted their vehicles to be. <laughs> So how, how do you go about designing a vehicle in Beam Saber? What, what, what does its stats look like compared to, the stats of a, compared to the stats of a character? Well, I didn't want it to be too... like I don't want it to be a crunchy game. So it's not mm-hmm. super intense in terms of the mechanics. 
The good thing, though, is that with Forge in the Dark games, Beam Saber included being fiction-first games, so the narrative elements inform the mechanics through uh, position and effect. So the first thing that you do is you describe what the look is of your vehicle, like its forms of mobility, uh, how it how gear is attached to it, what the cockpit is like, you know, a whole bunch of different details. And so, for instance, if you decide that your vehicle doesn't have, you know, any arms and its weapons are just, like, bolted onto it, then obviously you're going to have, like, reduced effect if you're trying to pick something up or gently manipulate something. But at the same right. time, those weapons are, like, securely on there. Maybe they give you a more stable firing platform. You know, there, yeah. there's a bunch of different ways that that could be interpreted. So that's that's like the initial step for describing, for uh, writing out the vehicles. And then right. the next major thing is that the uh, vehicles have quirks, which is not unlike the stress that is available to pilots, because you still use it for pushing yourself when you're taking vehicle actions or resisting consequences with your vehicle or to your vehicle. Yeah. But the main thing is that all the you, you start off with four quirks. You can get up to eight uh, through yeah. um, upgrading your vehicle during downtime. And each of those quirks is a pair of descriptors, one positive, one negative. Okay. You have to narrativize their use yeah. when you spend them for a benefit. Alternatively... You can narrativize the downside to get XP during a session. Okay, that's really interesting. So you have these XP triggers in Blazed in the Dark and Forged in the Dark, which are, if you fulfill something during a score, then you are you take XP. But what you're saying is that you're both incentivizing people to take these flaws, or these, these quirks rather, that are both positive and negative. So you are doing something which not only encourages your role playing because uh, it's a, there's a mechanical incentive to do so but also because it's going to make your mech look a lot cooler so uh, yeah that's a good that's a neat little feature i like that yeah it gives each uh, each person's mech some character you know uh, it's not rust it's character so yeah that, that's basically like the gist of how the vehicles work uh, obviously sure. there will be differences like based on scale and how that interacts with your roles yeah. and your position and effect, if you're familiar with um, Forged in the Dark games. That's kind of baked into the system, isn't it? And it's uh, then just a matter of interpreting that. I mean, you say that Blades in the Dark is very different to what Beam Saber is about, but, I mean, the system that's underlying it is... Uh, I guess that's the point of Forged in the Dark, but it's very open and generic, and there's people who've done things with it which are extremely different to Blades and extremely different to Beam Saber, actually. It's just a very neat, open system. Which I, I've had quite a lot of discourse with people about this over the years, and some people say, oh, it's very much a GM's game for GMs, and other people who say it's a very player-like, easy game, easy to get to grips with, and some people say it's crunchy, and some people say it's light, and some people say it's fiction first, and other people say it's not. <laughs> and, you know, it's very much a system for everybody, but it does take some leaning into, if you like, it's not necessarily something that you can read in the abstract. You have to play it. If you don't play it, you don't understand what this game is. And that I genuinely believe that. I love Blades in the Dark. I think it's a fantastic system. And I love other Forged in the Dark systems as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to Partizan, <laughs> hmm. i got to say. 
let's hear a little bit about the pilots of the vehicles <laughs> and um, how they would differ from uh, shady criminals in an industrial fantasy ghost-ridden city. Yeah, um, there's going to be a lot that's familiar to people who have played Blades. There's a lot of familiar actions and a lot of familiar abilities available to the pilots. There's a couple, there, there's three new playbooks and there's a smattering of new abilities. Well, I say three new playbooks, but what I mean by that is that a lot of the playbooks in Beam Saber are closely modeled after ones that are found in Blades. For instance, the cutter in Blades uh, becomes the soldier in Beam Saber. But they aren't entirely the same. There's uh, Each one of them has new abilities or abilities that uh, have been rearranged a bit to make them more appropriate to the archetype that they're calling upon. For instance, the officer is more of a like on-site commander than the spider's mastermind. But there, obviously there will be things that will be familiar to uh, people um, who are familiar with Blades. Uh, and then there's the three entirely new playbooks, which are the, uh, the ace, the bureaucrat, and the empath. So you are leaning pretty heavily into the anime tropes here. I can kind of picture who they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was hesitant at first to actually add in the empath because I wasn't sure if I wanted to have psychic powers in my game. But obviously it made it in. It made it into the game a while ago. I'm really happy with how all three of them have turned out and the various abilities that they have and what each of them adds to the game. Yeah. Other than those playbooks, the main difference between pilots and the scoundrels of Be of uh, blades in the dark is how assisting works and um, stress relief in beam saber which is all part of the uh, cut loose connection assist loop during downtime the way you get rid of stress is uh, not by indulging a vice, but by taking the cut loose action, where you spend time with another pilot in the squad, and you describe how the two of you relieve stress. That could be, you know, like hanging out and repairing your vehicles in like a comfortable silence. It might be that the two of you go out and you get drinks together, or maybe you just tear a strip off of them for something they did during the mission. All of those are viable. And all of those lean really heavily into what you do, what you see in uh, in anime. You know, Gundam and Neon Genesis both have these, <laughs> both sort of have these post-fight scenes where people are fixing their mechs and shouting at each other. And yeah, so then once you have your scene, uh, then instead of rolling your lowest attribute rating, uh, you roll your connection you have with the pilot that you just had the cut loose scene with. So everyone starts off with one connection. Uh, with every other pilot in the squad. So you roll that die and you heal that much stress. Um, and the connection is a four-step clock. And so after you heal the stress, you add another step. And when you add that new step, you also add a new belief because you have a number of beliefs equal to the number of steps in the connection clock. These beliefs are things that your pilot believes about the other pilots in the squad. They don't necessarily have to be true. They just have to be something that could be true and is the kind of like gut reaction to the other people that pilots rely upon to keep themselves and their comrades alive. And if you struggle because of them during a session, then you can get XP at the end of the session. Oh, that's cool. I like that. So until you 
hit that particular point. What I was thinking is it sounds a lot like um, the connections that you have in Dungeon World and how you tie yourselves together for aid and other roles in, in Dungeon World and kind of similar to strings in Monster Hearts if you've if you've played Monster Hearts. I have played both of those and um, uh, I had, actually I hadn't made the strings connection in spite of having played it but um, a Dungeon World's uh, Bonds was definitely one of the inspirations for beam saber that's really nice because the beliefs feels like the bonds that you write for dungeon world you know it's like this person cannot be trusted and therefore i don't know what to do with them but or uh i will guard this person with my life something like that and kind of the beliefs that you're writing as part of this feels uh like it's going back to that that sort of dungeon world heritage which is partly where i guess blades and the dark came from as well so it all ties together really neatly um yeah Sorry, I just really love the genealogy of role-playing games. Like to <laughs> investigate the ancestry and, uh, you know, find out where where things get pulled from, or those connections which maybe get made subconsciously as well, like with this Monster Hearts. You can then do that in in combat, as it were, or in within a score. Yeah, there, there's actually um, just before we move on to the next step of the loop, there's a bit more with connections, which is that okay, cool. um, when you fill that four tick clock, uh, you then reset to one both pilots mark xp and you get to ask a question about one of your beliefs about the other pilot and the the player has to answer truthfully so this represents cool. um your pilot getting a new understanding and thus reaching a new uh sort of level of relationship a sort of like when you're growing up and you finally have that conscious realization that your parents are people trying to do their best and they're not like exclusively parents as an entity sort of like a, you understand the other person in a new light yeah it's sort of what i'm trying to get at and that sort of like changes your relationship with them and puts your understanding of them on the back foot a bit so you reset your uh, connection clock with them back to one but that's also an important part of the uh, stress ecosystem because the third part of this loop as you were saying during a mission, when you want to assist uh, your fellow pilots in Blades in the Dark, you spend one stress and then the other person can get an extra die, have improved position, have improved perfect, or uh, act even when they have a level 3 harm. In Beam Saber, instead you spend an amount of stress equal to the number of connections you have with the pilot you're assisting. So okay. if you have three beliefs with them, it's going to be a very costly three stress to aid them. However, you also get to provide them with three benefits, three unique benefits. So you can give them plus one die, increased effect, and improved position. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea being that the closer you are to someone the more stressful it is when they need your help, but the harder you push yourself to assist them. That sounds very true, and also that's very much how you see fights in the the kind of you know the the standard anime mecha fights working. You know, you will you'll see people who are more closely connected trying to go out of their way to help other people and possibly getting damaged or injured. A lot of the mechanics that you're writing for this game really reinforce the underlying media and the touchstones that you're trying to get across, which is, I would say, probably 50% of what game design is about. So <laughs> you've done a pretty fantastic job. Every time I read part of the uh, the Quick Start Guide that 
that there's something different, I can see why you've made that decision and what the ramifications of that decision are in terms of how it will make the narrative feel, what moods and moments it will bring out in a game. So, yeah, I think you've done a pretty fantastic job. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, big kudos because it's uh, it's very slickly written. I really like it. Since since you've only uh, had access to the quick start guide at this point, um, the full rules, which uh, aren't available to Kickstarter backers at the moment, they will. Everyone will get the full rules once the campaign concludes. It includes a lot more stuff for long term play. Cool. For instance, there's a whole big section about uh, how to prepare missions and how to prepare for campaigns, how to end campaigns, yeah, how to create factions and squads as well. And uh, there's also alternate rules that are in the, the rule book as well, such as um, if you want to do GM-less play for Beam Saber, or if you want to uh, change how... Uh, healing works in your game so there's a lot of additional tools in the full rule book so i would quite like to touch on this idea of gmless play because as i said before i i kind of do kind of strongly feel that it is a very gm heavy game so i i'm interested in um what tools you provide to convert that and to enable players to make their own gming decisions yeah so Every tabletop role-playing game is a conversation. But I think that Forge in the Dark games more so than others because of how narrative-focused it is and how light on simulationism it is. So I think that in its bones, it's already got what's necessary there, the game being a conversation. So a lot of what the GM-less alternate rules do is just telling people to discuss amongst each other like here's the stuff that the gm would normally decide talk with everyone and figure out what is most applicable here yeah and then another thing that a lot of people have told me is uh, very useful for beam saber is that there is in the rules and list of example consequences uh, very clearly spelling out what the consequences probably should be for controlled risky and desperate positions yeah uh, since those can uh, vary quite uh, quite a bit so the gmless alternate rules point people to that and say once you've you know assigned your position you can just look at these examples and pull from this list yeah of what would be most reasonable yeah to use uh, for consequences because i think that's sort of the thing that falls to the gm the most is what the consequences are when you get a failed role or a partial success i think it's the hardest thing to pick up about blades in the dark as well that when you when you have these when you have these failures and these consequences it's it's difficult to look at that menu that is provided for you and to abstract that to the narrative that you have in front of you at that moment and that you have in the theatre of the mind. And I think some people struggle with that, and it's very useful, as you've done, to provide a table for that and to provide something where people can uh, make make reference to that. And yes, that would definitely help with GMless play. Yeah. <laughs> Basically what you said, but <laughs> more flowery. I think you've hit on another interesting point as well, which is about um, ending a campaign which is something that uh, is not in 
Vanilla Blades in the Dark. And I've talked about this quite a lot with people recently, about how classic role-playing games don't provide you with this idea of closure, and they will just let you go on forever and ever. And that is not how media works. Uh, <laughs> media always has an end, apart from soap operas. And do you, want, do you want to go into a little bit about why you've opted to talk about ending a campaign? I think you're absolutely right that a lot of traditional games lack that guidance in those directions. I think that there is a move towards including such rules in a lot of modern tabletop role-playing games. Some of them are less clear than others, like if I'm recalling correctly, Apocalypse World is written in such a way that once players have taken, I think it's about 10 advancements, once, once someone has hit 10 advancements, then the game like just starts to break down rules-wise. Yeah, so, which, that tracks. Yeah, which I think is, if I recall correctly, intentional, because it's supposed to get you to like wrap things up. But it's certainly uh, more implied than anything and could have been uh, expounded upon a bit more. But there, there are lots of other games that are, uh, like I said, bringing that forward, especially a lot of games that are uh, designed for short-term play. Yeah. Um, the aforementioned uh, Stew Pot, and that's a, a game based on uh, uh, another uh, Migui and uh, Vincent Baker game, Mobile Frame Zero Firebrands, and uh, it builds into it a, an endpoint for the game, a very clear, definitive one. Yeah. I think that it is important, as you said, to have a, a finale and directions on how to do that because i think most people don't have experience ending stories whether or not they come from no. the background of tabletop role-playing games or uh even fiction writing i think a lot of people who do you know write fiction don't always get around to finishing their stories for one reason or another right yeah. like for every story that you write you get a lot of writing in the middle but you only get one ending and if you don't get to that ending, then as you said, you're not going to get that practice very frequently. Despite people consuming a lot of media, I feel like maybe role-playing games are not providing the narrative tools that people need to end stories or even bend stories, you know, where you have these twists in the middle. Sometimes you're not given the guidance necessary. Like, I think we put a lot of pressure and stress on GMs to, to go out there and make wonderful stories but without necessarily providing them with the storytelling tools that they require or you're assuming that people are expert storytellers and when the story falls flat a lot of that comes back and hits the gm and either it can sour people's experience or it can make gms just feel bad it's definitely something i've experienced and um it's good that indie games in particular are trying to now provide those those frameworks and those narrative methodologies for, for getting through a story that is not just, here's how to start a quest, here's what a quest looks like at the end, here's what you should probably do in the middle. It's everything, and it's, in, it's encompassing, and it's really good that indie designers are trying to consider the GM now. I think a lot of where that comes from is that traditionally people who have gm'd a lot are the ones who tend to write the games yeah and so i think there's this assumption that not even assumption i think it just doesn't hit them that they need to write an explanation about how to hit these certain narrative beats yeah whether that's you know starting or ending and i think that the reason that that is sort of being broken more so in uh, the indie scene 
is because of the fact that there's a lot of people who don't GM who are writing games. Just like flat out don't GM, only play GMless games, or only play as players. Or they are people who just like basically haven't played at all or have played very little and have been like, this is great. I want to make my own sort of thing. Yeah. And it's sort of um, taking this like, and I don't mean to say this in any sort of derogatory way, but taking sort of like fanfic feel to them in that it's like, I saw this thing that I really like. I want to engage more with it. So I'm going to make my own and, you know, right. learn, learn along the way but also bring in these completely new ideas because I haven't had 15 years of GMing ingrained into me. Right, it's kind of like naive art and how that works and how that interacts with a mainstream art scene. You know, it's like, sure, we have all of these um, these institutions and these people who write games and are well-established, and then we have new voices coming in and they are making changes and saying they want to do things differently. And you write in that it is a little bit like fanfic, but there is some pretty wonderful fanfic out there, and there are some pretty wonderful naive games out there. Exactly. It's not a very polite way of saying it, but it is—it's um, how I feel. It's definitely what the itch scene feels like. You know, it's—you um, can tap into people who are making games because that feels like a very raw emotional connection to what they want to get out in the world. And it's not always polished, and it's not always perfect. But it is always really cool to see. I have a lot of respect for people who are making games, who perhaps have not had 20 years of role-playing experience before they decide they want to make one. I've said this on um, other podcasts, there is no better time than now to get into creating a game. Itch is extremely accessible. Um, I have my games on both DriveThruRPG and Itch, and the back end of Itch is so much more easy to navigate than DriveThrus. Yeah, it, it really is. Yes, yeah, so I, I and and the fact that you can you know put things up for pay what you want and have reverse sales on Itch and yeah. like very easily put out bundles or co-op bundles. If anyone listening to this hasn't had a look at itch.io and its physical game section, I highly recommend that you go and look at that, especially if you've only looked at the stuff on DriveThruRPG. Yeah. And keep an open mind while doing so, because as you said, the, like a lot of these games are low production value. A lot of them are, you know, made in Google Docs and then exported. So they don't have like professional layout. They probably have some like royalty free image used as their cover or any art that's on the inside. Yeah. You know, not a lot of graphic design goes into them, but that doesn't mean that the games are bad by any stretch. Yeah, guilty as charged. Uh that's how I run my games. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely, I 100% endorse that message. Go out on itch. I do like drive-through because they have everything that you might possibly want to buy. I like itch because they have things that you don't know that you want to buy. And they have tiny story games and they have fun story jams and they do really nice things and it's very simplistic and it feels like you're part of a really exciting vanguard, a really exciting scene. And all together that is fantastically wholesome and it's really wonderful to be part of it yeah i i'd encourage anyone who's listening that if like you're thinking about grabbing a supplement for like dungeons and dragons or some other uh big game and it's going to cost you like 
15 20 for the pdf and you're not sure if you're ever going to actually use it i would recommend go to itch go to the physical games and grab you know like 10 different two dollar games on there and like maybe just like it'll give you an idea of what's out there you know see what sort of weird games are happening on itch also if you're thinking of publishing a game then that is where you should publish your game and don't spend a lot of time on it but make sure you charge people for it because that is that is very much what happens yeah charge at least a dollar that's 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 what i say yep that's the golden rule i i love that we've talked about itch so much because it's definitely my favorite place if if mechs and vehicles and pilots and forge in the dark doesn't interest you i have three small games that are up on my itch page for a dollar each one is a single player horror game called alone in the house one is a two-player game about uh partners who are heading towards a task that is definitely dangerous and morally dubious and it's about sorting out like how they feel about what they're about to do. Oh, that sounds cool. And then I also have a last game, which is a like alternating phases game where one phase is PvE and the other phase is PvP. And it's about a group of adventurers trying to defeat a shape-shifting, mind-reading immortal who guards a singular wish so if you manage to defeat the immortal you then have a limited amount of time to decide who gets the wish and it has to be unanimous agreement before the immortal revives itself and you have to fight it all over again before you get another shot at agreeing who gets that wish hey that sounds funky i'm gonna definitely have a look at that that sounds amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah and uh while you're all voting you can just choose to backstab your other members because if you're the only one alive you're the only one who gets to vote (laughs) yeah yeah that's true one man one vote i'm the man and i get the vote okay yep why don't you tell us about the other places we can find you on social media and if you just want to plug that kickstarter again then i'm not going to stop you yeah sure so you can find me on twitter at not an in that's n-o-t-a-n-i-n-n that's also the twitter account for the you don't meet in an in podcast and I suppose also the Beam Saber, the Cenotaph podcast, and all things Beam Saber. Speaking of Beam Saber, uh, you can find the Kickstarter for that at tinyurl.com slash beamsaberkickstarter. To be clear, that's the American spelling of Saber. You can find Beam Saber and You Don't Meet in an Inn on Facebook. They each have their Facebook pages, uh, if you prefer Facebook. And there's also a You Don't Meet in an Inn subreddit. And lastly, there is a Beam Saber Discord if you want to hop in there and discuss it with people. You can find a link to that on my itch page or on the Kickstarter, or you can just at me on Twitter and I will happily give you a link to it. And the Kickstarter is up until March 31st, so yep, I'm going to check that out. And I encourage everybody else to do so as well because Beam Saber sounds awesome and is awesome, I should say. I certainly think so yeah (laughs) let's go with that cool um well thank you very much for coming on the on the podcast uh austin and maybe next time you have a huge kickstarter campaign app we'll have you on again to talk about it that would be great i really appreciate you having me on Uh, no worries good luck with the rest of the campaign and goodbye bye thanks for listening and thanks again to austin for the interview 
please check out the links he mentioned, which as always will be in the episode description. In two weeks, I'll be interviewing Sendela Now of She's a Super Geek about her new game, Turning Point, a story game about one person making a momentous decision. Sender was lovely to speak to, and we had a real blast when we chatted. I can't wait for you to hear it, so check back in two weeks for that. I've mentioned the Patreon page at the top of the show, but I'll point it out here again. Right now, I've suspended periodic payments because absolutely everybody is facing a metric ton of uncertainty. If you sign up, you only have to pay once, the upfront fee, until at least May 1st. That's the pre-release of every upcoming episode, as well as all of my games from Itch.io. The Sanjanara Corp Short Game Digest for Spring 2020 has just been released, and is available on DriveThruRPG. It has 8 games for just $10, which is an absolute steal. It includes Extreme Pizza Delivery by yours truly, which I wrote as a bet, and is about giving pizza away to marginalised folks in a city where to do so is illegal and dangerous. It's a lot better than it ought to be, so please check it out. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamFofos, that's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and filmmusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed.